You know, I, I was reminded this week, I think I told you that at Passover, the Jewish community always sets the table for Elijah. Uh, don't think I told you. Even in Orthodox, in the Orthodox world, they put a place out for Elijah at all circumcisions. So Elijah has just grabbed hold of the uh, Israelite Jewish mindset. Uh, Elijah, even though there's not that much about him in the Bible... As slowly as we're going through it, you probably think there's a lot about him, but these are just a few chapters here. There's not that much about him in the Bible, but he has captivated the imagination of the Jewish people. Um, so, uh, just to make sure you know where we're at, he was, he was placed by himself on the east side of the Jordan River, fed by the ravens, uh, taken care of by God, then he left there. Uh, and spent time uh, in the Sidonian era area near Sidon, the homeland of Jezebel, where um, he stayed with the widow of Zarephath. And then he was sent back. He's very obedient to God. He was sent back from God to uh, find Ahab, King Ahab, the wicked King Ahab. And uh, Obadiah, who works for Ahab, helped facilitate that meeting. And when they had that meeting... Elijah said to Ahab, Now therefore send and gather all Israel, all Israel, to me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. That's where we left off last week. Um, it's interesting that Elijah's taking, um, Elijah's giving instructions to King Ahab, and King Ahab is listening. So King Ahab does exactly what Elijah asked. Uh, you know, gather these people, gather Israel and these false prophets to me on Mount Carmel. Um, again, Mount Carmel is a famous mountain. It's near the Mediterranean Sea today. It's a little south of the modern city of Haifa. People are learning more of their is Israeli geography these days. Um, it's a little south of the Israeli city of Haifa. Uh, it has long, long, long been a place of uh, Jewish worship and pagan worship. You're going to see that in the text here. So it's a very prominent public place to have this um, contest, this showdown between Elijah and prophets of Baal. So with that, look at, look at verse 20, chapter 18. So Ahab sent all the people of Israel. Well, again, it's not everybody in Israel, but a whole lot of them. <laughs> sent all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. Uh, so he invited all 850 prophets that were just referenced in verse 19. Uh, they all don't show up. We don't know exactly what happened to the prophets of Asherah. Uh, it appears it's the prophets of Baal that show up. So they all show up. They go, they, they, they're going to see whose God is the greatest. Look at verse 21. Um, this is a verse that does, I think, indicate... Elijah's culture and, and our culture in a lot of ways. Look at verse 21. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. What's he saying there to the people? You've got to choose. Um, the Hebrew word, is translated in my English text, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? Give me some other options for limping. Wavering. Say it again. Wavering. 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 That's probably good. 
halting, hobbling. I think King James says halting, halting, hobbling. So what are the people doing according to Elijah? Yeah, trying to have it both ways. You know, sitting on a fence, jumping off on Bell's side occasionally, jumping off on Jehovah's side occasionally. But yeah, they, 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 they're trying to um, be, be both. They like a religious buffet. Go after Baal when it suits your purposes. Go after the God of Abraham, uh, Isaac, and Jacob when it suits your purposes. And, and Elijah's saying you can't do that. You got to take a stand. You can't have a foot in both worlds. Um, yeah, you got to choose who your God is. And actually, it's going to be used again in a few moments as you're going to see the prophets of Baal get wild. Um, yeah, same, same, same Hebrew word. Limping, dancing, wavering. You're going to get to see what these Baal prophets do in a minute, and they're doing a little bit of all that. Yeah, so I think it's pretty clear to the people why Elijah is gathering them here. Uh, notice when he says this to the people at the end of verse 21, and the people did not answer him a word. They knew they'd been indicted. Uh, I think they knew Elijah pretty much um, nailed the situation. Uh, they 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 just on the fence. They, 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 there's no Switzerland in the spiritual world. There's no place of neutrality in the spiritual world. Jesus said, he who is not with me is against me. To not choose is to make a choice. Um, so yeah, Elijah's nailing it here for these people. You can't have a little bit of your culture, a little bit of your culture's gods, and a little bit of the God of Abraham, uh, Jacob and Isaac, or Isaac and Jacob. Anyway, so they don't answer. I think they're being convicted, or at least heading toward conviction. Look at verse 22. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Now, we have found this interesting. He says, I'm the only one of the Lord left, or Lord's prophets left. Is that true completely? Where's, where's some other? Yeah, Obadiah hit 100, two different caves. So probably, unless Elijah's having a really bad senior moment, he, he probably means I'm the only public one. I mean, yeah, you got, you got another 100 prophets of Jehovah, but they're hiding in a cave somewhere. So Elijah's, he, he's the only public one. He's the only one standing up. He's the only one going after Ahab, Jezebel. He's going after the culture. He's going after uh, the false prophets and false gods. Um, he is standing alone by himself here on Mount Carmel. And here comes the instructions. Verse 23, Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. Fire is going to become really, really important in this story. Put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on wood and put no fire to it. And you, you prophets of Baal, you call upon the name of your Lord and the God who answers by fire, he is God. 
the God who answers by fire, He is God. I'm sure that you, if you think back through the Scriptures about where God sort of makes His presence known, or God uses fire to make His presence known, you begin to realize there's a lot of those in the, in the Bible. Name me some. Burning, Burning bush. Uh, That's right. Abraham was getting ready to offer a sacrifice, and God came down in the form of fire and sort of consecrated the sacrifice. Pentecost. Pentecost. Yep. Uh, As of tongues of fire on the heads of the people there. Yeah, when they were being led out of Egypt, a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Any others that you can think of? You've got the big ones. Solomon and Gomorrah, destroyed by fire, brimstone and sulfur. Um, oh, two of my favorite texts. When the tabernacle gets built, God shows up in, as fire. When the temple gets built in Second Chronicles, God shows up as fire. Yeah, calls on them. It's a dramatic picture. And the temple's completed, and when the temple's consecrated, fire sort of shows up in the temple, and before that in tabernacle. One of, one of the verses of the New Testament that we should memorize, because it's really short, is, is Hebrews 12, 29. Our God is a consuming fire. Yeah, those people who want to trifle with God, who want to make Him as a nice great uncle in the sky who can give us gifts occasionally. Yeah, they need to remember verses like Hebrews 12, 29. Our God is a consuming fire. You don't, you don't trifle with God. Um, so fire is important. So that, that's why Elijah says, I will call upon the name of the Lord and the God who answers by fire, he is God. Now remember, Baal is a God in the ancient world, little g, God in the ancient world, who is God of lightning and fire and storms and fertility. He was God of about everything because he was, he was a big God in the ancient world. So here's this te- te- test, and they're going to see which God answers by fire. Uh, and all the people answered, it is well spoken. So this is, this is going to be a good thing. So look at verse 25. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first. They, they chop it up. For you are many, and call upon the name of your God, and put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them, they prepared it, and called upon the name of Baal from morning till noon, three, four, five, six hours, saying, O Baal, answer us, O Baal, answer us. You know, for hours they're doing this. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped. There's that word again. They limped. They danced. They wavered. They hobbled. Um... And they limped around the altar that they had made. Now, I, I, I love this because it shows the human side of Elijah. Verse 27, and at noon, Elijah mocked them. Elijah's just been watching, you know, this spectacle. At noon, Elijah mocked them. And watch this. Cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he is musing or he's doing what? traveling. My translation is a little more honest. It says relieving himself. (laughs) Traveling is a euphemism there. Um, 
Yeah, your God's gone to the outhouse. <laughs> Either he is musing, he's thinking, or he's relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. Yeah, Elijah's being a little sarcastic here um, as he's watching them. Well, this makes those prophets of Baal work that much harder. Look what they do. Verse 28, And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on, raved on, until the time of the offering of the oblation, offering of the evening sacrifice, that's 3 p.m. in the temple. But there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. So here they are. They're, they're getting more and more um, wild and ecstatic. Uh, they're, they're dancing, they're hobbling, they're, sway, they're swaying back and forth. Uh, they finally cut themselves. Um, that's not unheard of in the ancient world. Uh, I give you one example where it's not unheard of in the modern world, but it's not unheard of in the ancient world. Uh, they would cut themselves because all the, all the other world religions think that you know you need to be good to God, you need to be serve God, you need to serve God. And that helps manipulate God, and you can get God to do what you want God to do. So you know if you follow that train of thought, yeah, cutting yourself, offering your blood will somehow get the God's attention and you can sort of manipulate the gods to do what you want. So part of what's going on here, and just think about the gods that you've learned about in those cheesy Roman and Greek movies, um, in like, like, like um, uh, Jason and the Argonauts, any of those movies. The gods are petty. The gods have a lot of human characteristics. The gods argue against each other. Um, they don't even, sometimes they're worse than the humans. They're certainly worse than Odysseus and people like that, worse than Jason. Uh, that, that's the, that, but the ancients had gods like that uh, who are just kind of humans on steroids. The, Greek, the Jews came along and said, God is not just a human being on steroids. God is totally other. God is transcendent. God is holy. God is separate from us. So you can't manipulate God. You know, you can't cut selves try to get more of God's attention. Let me tell you one, this still happens somewhat. Let me tell you one, one of the most bizarre experiences I ever had in my life. And it all goes back to, I'll do anything for the church. I'll beg for money for the church. I'll do anything for the church. I went white water rafting one time. I'll tell you that story. My <laughs> wife couldn't do it. My wife, my family never got me to do it, but I had a young adult group that asked me. And I went white water rafting. Did not turn out well, but that's the story for another day. Well, when I was a Duke intern... I had a member of my church that I was working at in Greensboro. She was in a band. And this is, sort, this is a good example of religious syncretism. She was sitting there in our church. I really got impressed. She was sitting there on most Sunday mornings. I became more impressed when I learned what she was doing until late, late on Saturday nights and early on Sunday mornings. Anyway, she was in a band. And I was young. I was... 23, I guess, maybe 24 in seminary. I was already dating Tammy by that point. That was, that was her home church. Well, this person who we loved, I still love her, I haven't seen her in years, who's in his band, she said, I'm going to be playing at a place in Chapel Hill. And I think it was called the Rat Skeller or something. <laughs> Evidently, you know about this place. I didn't know about this place. 
this is, we're, we're going back into the early 1980s. So for a church member, says, come see me perform. I said, sure, I'd love to. I'll do anything with the church. So Tammy and I went. You should get her to tell you this story. Here I am in my blue blazer, my penny loafers, my khakis, my button-down shirt. Things, some things don't change. I go into this place. It was a wild punk rock rave. It was, I, I'm sure I startled them more than they startled me. But I was determined to say I heard, yes, I heard you play. But back in the, I don't know if they still do it. They have, some of them have these bands on it that have like spikes to where if they dance, they can draw blood from each other. Can we say pagan? That's why Elijah's watching. They get in a frenzy and they don't... Anyway, um, I can't remember this lady's name, young girl's name. She got up on stage, hit one note on her guitar, and I made my way out. I went out the kitchen. That was the closest way out. And I left. And she was at church the next day and said, I saw that you came. What did you think about it? And I'm sure I just said something like it was very interesting. And, um, yeah, I mean... At least up to that point, it was. But again, what shocked me the most was my good church member. Now she was young, my good church member who sat in our pews every Sunday morning didn't see a disconnect. And actually, what I heard before I exited, because there was a group that played before she did, um, the music had so many lyrics about violence and death and darkness, nihilism, nothing matters. Yeah, and then she got him. As soon as she did this one time, I went out the kitchen, and I got out of that place. You know, but here she's in my pew on Sunday morning. She can't see the disconnect. That's just entertainment, you know, to her, I guess. Yeah, that's exactly what Elijah's fighting here. And it is interesting. He even calls it a rave. You know what a rave is in this culture? You know, I've never been to one, but I hear it's like a wild, drug-induced stupor party with loud music. Anyway, so here's Elijah looking at, you know, a, um, an early form of a rave where they're drawing blood from each other. They're, they're in great ecstasy. You know, I'm sure it's quite a spectacle to be, behold up there on top of Mount Carmel. Anyway, of course, they're getting nothing out of their God. Uh, they may be having a good time, but they're getting nothing out of their God. So look at verse 30. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near me. And all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar. Did you notice that? He repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Wonder why it had been thrown down? Wonder who had thrown it down? Yeah. Remember, Jezebel's been killing prophets, and Jezebel's trying to make, um, trying to, to, to extinguish the worship of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and trying to get everybody to worship Baal. So, yeah, some of the altars had been torn down that had been used to worship the true God. So, here, Elijah, he's not getting in a hurry. He, he, he puts the rocks back up and restores the altar um, because there's been this attack on true religion there in the northern ten tribes or in the northern part of Israel. So he builds it back. But notice what he does in 31. The crowd noticed this. You might not notice this. 
Elijah took how many stones? According to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. That's exactly what God said to Isaac, to Jacob when he became Israel. Israel shall be your name. Israel is a new name for Jacob. And with the, with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. We've talked about the division of the kingdom, right? There's only ten tribes in the north in Israel, centered on Samaria, where Ahab and Jezebel rule. Uh, they, they are carried away into captivity 150 years or more before uh, the southern kingdom, Jerusalem and Judah is. Down south, you got Judah and Benjamin. So he builds, he rebuilds the altar, 12 stones. The crowd around him are, they're Israel. Again, in Bible history, you got Israel, at this point, Judah. After Solomon, the kingdom divided. Ten tribes, two tribes. They're all saying they're the true Israelites. But when he rebuilds it, the people in the crowd would have liked it had he rebuilt it with ten stones. But he rebuilds it with twelve stones. There's no extraneous words in the Bible, twelve stones. Do you kind of feel what Elijah's saying there? Probably an anti-leaving Jude in Jerusalem statement. But he also could be saying we are spiritually united as a people. We are the one people of Israel, the one people of Jacob. Um, Most of us have noticed for centuries he 12 stones, not 10. So he's hearkening back to before the split of the kingdom. So he's teaching them something about maybe who they should be, what they should be, or at least the spiritual unity that they have with the folks down in the south around Jerusalem uh, because these people are up in the north. Anyway, so he rebuilds the altar. That's the altar he's going to use. Still in verse 32, and he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two says of seed, uh, give me a modern English. I, I don't. We don't use says. Uh, two says of seed is about how much? Yeah, you know. I read like seven quarts each, which would make three gallons. I, anyway, it's not a lot, but it's, it's a substantial amount. So you got this. Um, got this trench around the altar. That's the size of the trench, and he put wood in order. He put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces, laid it on the wood, and he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time, and they did it a second time. He said, do it a third time. They did it a third time, and the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. Now, inquiring minds should ask what question at this point. Exactly. Where'd the water come from? It's the middle of a drought. A um, couple, couple things where, where I think the water came from is what I've, what I've said several times, Mount Carmel, you can see what from Mount Carmel? The Mediterranean Sea. He doesn't say get fresh water. Now, you're also going to see, and it's still true today, the Kishon runs right at the base of um, Mount Carmel. So, you know, maybe it's still springing up with water. Uh, I'm going to, because it messes up my sermon, I'm going to say that it's, it's, it's gone dry too. Because you're going to see something, you're going to see a reference in the last verse of this story to, to, the, to, the, to the Kishon uh, Creek. So I think there's getting water out of the Mediterranean. 
So that, that's where the water comes from, in case you've got a cynical friend who says, it's been a three-year drought, where are they getting all this water from? They're near the Mediterranean. Geography does matter. They're near the Mediterranean. Verse 36, and at the time of the offering of the oblation, again, that's evening sacrifice, 3 p.m., Baal's people are still trying to make something happen. Elijah the prophet came near. Now watch this. Here's a prayer. It takes about 20 seconds to read this prayer. He's not dancing. He's not cutting himself. He's not screaming. He's not being a spectacle. He just came near and he prayed, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel. Another way of praying that is hallowed be thy name. You know, let your name be held holy. Let the people know that you are God. Draw out the glory that you deserve. Let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Repentance only happens when God helps us repent. We're not smart enough creatures to know how to repent without God helping us. So that's just a pretty simple prayer compared particularly compared to all the activity of all the many prophets of Baal. And then here's your result. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. So that's not just a lightning strike. Um, notice that, you know, the stones, the wood, the, everything is incinerated by this fire that, that, that came down. The one who answers by fire will be God. Um, again, inquiring minds, you know, should say, well, that's a little extreme, God. You know, just a light in the fire would have been pretty spectacular. Why do you think, think now as a good Jew, why do you think God chose to do this wonderful, miraculous, amazing, historic thing, but he did it in such a way that every piece of it was incinerated? Well, there might be a reason for that. If you think like a good Jew, the first thing you should say is, God's trying to keep them from building a shrine there. I mean, human beings, what human beings are, they'd have built a shrine, and I'd be on a bus in Israel going to look at it. <laughs> um, Jews are not fond of shrines and images and idols. Again, the God, the God of Abraham... Uh, Isaac and Jacob is a transcendent holy God, and he's a little nervous about, about idols because we can take things that start out good and make them into an idol. So just like with the body of Moses, remember God buried Moses because I think God didn't want anybody to know where Moses was buried. There'd be a really big shrine there if they knew where Moses was buried. Anyway, it's, this, is a, this is a phenomenal end to this story. It's a supernatural event. Everything sort of, almost everything's incinerated. Verse 39, and when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. When I've been on top of Mount Carmel with people before, we, we pray and then we just, we repeat that several times there on Mount Carmel. The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Um, something I want you to know from a Jewish perspective is this. What's the holiest day in the Jewish year? It just sort of happened. Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur. Um, the holiest day of the Jewish year. 
in Jewish, in most Jewish liturgies, the, the climax of that day, the end of Yom Kippur worship, is the congregation because they're renewing their covenant with God. Um, is is the congregation gathering and saying, the, quoting this, "The Lord He is God. The Lord He is God." Uh, that's part of the, to this day. That's part of the Yom Kippur worship or prayer for the Jewish people. And of course, you saw what happened on Yom Kippur this year in Israel. Same thing happened on Yom Kippur in 1973 or two, three. Um, yeah, the Yom Kippur War. That's the holiest day of the Jewish people. But this, this is still recited in the liturgy for Yom Kippur among, among, among the Jews. Because that's the climax. So it looks kind of like a revival when all the people saw it. They fell on their faces prostrate, worshiping. The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Um, look at verse 40. And Elijah said to them, watch this. Seize the prophets of Baal. Let no one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. Um, yeah, the Hebrew Bible particularly says don't trifle with God. Now, this looks a little extreme, and I've even heard sermons on this text where they quit reading at verse 39. They don't include verse 40, because we moderns are, you know, our sensitive ears can't handle this. But from a Hebrew Jewish perspective, those prophets were a terrible, 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 terrible cancer on the body of Israel. So, yeah. God, God did major surgery. Shows you what God thinks about false prophets, thinks about idolatry. Um, yeah, I promise you if I preach on this text, I'm going to read verse 42. Verse 40 also. Uh, because you need to see that. God takes stuff very seriously that we, we again, we trifle with. But, you know, for all these false teachers because of Jezebel and Ahab coming into the people of Israel and trying and being successful to a certain extent. Remember, the altar was torn down. Pulling the people of Israel away from God. Yeah, God takes that very seriously. And by the way, I told you a while ago, I think the, the brook Kishon is dry because that just makes logical sense. You're in a drought. You're at the end of a three-and-a-half-year drought. Um, that's why I think you've got to get your water out of the Mediterranean. I think the image here is the blood of those prophets are running in the dry uh, riverbed of the Kishon Brook. I think that's the image you're left with here. Um, yeah, Jews don't forget this story for a lot of reasons. Jews don't forget this story. So I think the blood ran where the water normally would run in the Brook Kishon. Questions, comments? That's an important text. Jeff, I read where um, Baal was known to be the god of thunder and lightning. Mm. So Elijah gave them the benefit of the doubt. People were expecting the lightning to consume. And I thought that was interesting. Yeah, because it really is a contest, just like you see in Egypt with the plagues. Who's God stronger, God of Israel or the, or the God of the Egyptians? Um, yeah, syncretism, religious buffets, mixing um, your religious faith. Oh, this, 
thank God it was not Duke Divinity School, of which I'm alum. It was Duke University. I, I, I don't, I don't, any of you ever been to the, um, the Duke Forest, the Duke Golf Course? It's really nice. I mean, I, I, I stayed there a few times at, on your penny or your dime or your dollar when the annual conference sent me there as district superintendent and we'd meet as a cabinet there. The, is it George B. Duke Golf? And anyway, um, I just was watching. Something came across my email the other day. And I'm glad it was being offered there, not the Divinity School. That may not have surprised me. Um, there was a workshop being offered. Uh, it was entitled something about how to intuit your future, colon, the use of tarot cards. Now, again, I'm just looking at thinking, you know, this is, I mean, I know it's just the golf club, golf organization there near the camp. Yeah, I mean, just as a serious academic institution, don't teach using tarot cards. I'm sure some good Christian people, I'm using that word loosely, showed up to learn, you know, about their future from the use of tarot cards. Yeah, God does not, God's a jealous God. You know, don't leave your prayer time in the morning, go check out your horoscope or bring out the tarot cards or whatever. Yeah, I mean, the book of Elijah is very clear, particularly when God's people begin to compromise in such a way that they're doing things that they can't even think about. Yeah, Quentin. And this is a real stretch, uh, but is there any comparison between Elijah dealing with the prophets of El, don't mess with God, don't trifle with God, and dealing with Israel now and Hamas? Uh, I mean, that's, I'm a stretch. I mean, I understand it's a stretch, but there is a cancer that's continuing to batter Israel right now, and, and I keep thinking, you know, would it be better then? And I'm really not asking you to respond. But oh, I'll respond. <laughs> um, I know your personal opinion, so please go ahead. I think Hamas is a cancer that needs to be cut out, and I think Israel will cut it out. You know, but one of the things that one of the things Israel knows, and this is where you're going to go for, I mean, when we continue on next week, Ahab and Jezebel don't give up. You know, Elijah's so hurt because he thought surely they would say, okay, Elijah, you win. Evil has such a tenacity. You know, even though I think they're trying to pull, and I, my heart breaks for the Arabs that are being used as human shields for the benefit and the sake of Hamas's hatred to Israel, I, my heart breaks. But, you know, human history being what it is, even though Hamas may be pulled up by the roots, not just cutting the grass, but pulled up by the roots this time, this kind of stuff that's going on, it'll create a new Hamas. Yeah, I wish we could defeat evil more easily. But and by the way, it, you know, before the darkness comes, Israel will be okay. Just like for us, before the darkness comes, we'll be okay. But just like today, time and time again, they tried to destroy God's people. And time and time again, they were defeated and shown to be wrong. We never learn. By the way, just as a piece of homework, um, if you need a, I'm always 
anything C.S. Lewis ever wrote, I, I encourage you to read. But he has one little simple essay that I wish you'd read this week. Just Google it, it'll pop up. He has a simple essay entitled, Why I Am Not a Pacifist. Why I Am Not a Pacifist. Which I think he probably wrote during World War II. You know, he attacks the idea, you know, because people have always said wars don't solve anything. Well, he, he starts off that essay saying sometimes wars do solve some things. You're not speaking German right now, for which I'm very thankful. Um, sometimes wars do solve things. But anyway, read C.S. Lewis's, um, yeah, we don't, you know, war's a terrible thing. It's never a good ethically. It's never a good, but sometimes it's, it's like surgery. It may be a necessary thing. Anyway, let's pray together, and then we'll head out. God, I thank you for the faithfulness of this group and their desire to bring their life uh, under submission to you and to your word. And God, we thank you that you love us so much. You haven't left us in darkness, but you, you have revealed yourself to us. You've revealed your character to us. And you have communicated to us your will and your ways. And God, you've said so much to us. We can know how to live. We can know how to live in this age and any age as we seek to be faithful to you. Lord, strengthen our commitment. Cast down all idols that we erect in our lives. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Have fun the rest of the week.